Well, good morning. I'd like to start off by thanking uh, the many of you who've sent kind words and condolences to our family in these past few days. And um, my grandmother was a woman of great faith. She was a very, very special uh, lady. She used to tell me, uh, I talked to her on the phone. Um, actually, I got to see her. Um, my family, my wife and I and the girls drove down a couple weeks ago and got to see her. But I, I talked to her on the phone, oh, I guess it was a few months ago. And, um, and she said, you know, she said, I haven't ever gotten to sit there and listen to you speak in person. But she said, when you speak, I always live stream it from Texas. And I figured this morning she's live streaming from heaven. So I'm excited about that, right? Um, but it's a... It's a wonderful thing to know that she is with her Lord and Savior and that she is whole and healthy, and, and we celebrate that even though it's a tough loss uh, in terms of our not getting to uh, be with her now here. And I thank you for your prayers as the family gets ready for the memorial service coming up. We are starting a, a brand new series this week called Jesus Encounters, and as, as my dad said, this entire series is based off of some very powerful stories that took place in the last week of Jesus' life. And this talk will be a little bit different than what you're used to hearing, at least, to, at least for me, because a lot of times what I'll do is I'll take a, a story from the scripture and we'll try to make several points about what that story tells us or, you know, we'll, I'll try to illustrate some different ways of looking at it. But these stories in the last week of Jesus' life are so powerful that really all that is needed is for us to look through the story itself. The, the truth is so heavy in the story that we don't have to do a lot to it. We just, we just need to explore what's here. And so this will be different in that I just want to unpack this uh, account that we have in the book of John. Of this, and it may be one of my favorite stories uh, in all of Scripture. Now, just to set the stage... In this last week of Jesus' life, uh, his ministry has reached a zenith. He's only been um, in somewhere between two and three years of earthly ministry, but so much has happened. Miracles that people have witnessed, people have been brought back to life, people have been healed of their sickness. And Jesus is an amazing teacher. He taught like nobody else. And people said, no one's ever spoken like this before. And so now whenever Jesus goes anywhere, there's a massive crowd of people around him. I mean, he can't get any solitude. It's very difficult for him to get away from the crowds. And those crowds included people who wanted to hear more about what he was talking about as far as God was concerned. And, uh, because it wasn't, it wasn't what they had heard before. It was, a, it was a different explanation of what it meant to have a relationship with God. So there were people around that were asking questions. There were, there were people that came just because they wanted to be healed. Something was wrong with them physically or, or, or maybe they were struggling with some sort of emotional or, or, or mental disturbance and they wanted Jesus to heal them of that. That was probably the largest crowd of people that were sort of pressing in on him. But then there was another crowd, and they were a real problem, and that was the religious folks, the religious leaders of the, of the day. And, and by the way, let me just break a sentence for a second and say that sometimes in our culture, especially in the American culture, there's this idea that Jesus is sort of like the, the figurehead for religion. He's sort of like the icon uh, for religion, and maybe we get that from the fact that you see Jesus on the crucifix and the, you know, the necklaces that people wear, or you think about the, you know, the depictions of Jesus and stained glass and cathedrals and, and old auditoriums. But what we need to understand is that Jesus is not the icon of religion. Jesus came to earth to dismantle religion. Religion is a man-made system of hoops for people to jump through in order to get to God. What religion says is if you change enough, then maybe you can have a relationship with God. 
Jesus came to earth and said, you need to have a relationship with God because it will take God to change you. And so Jesus was coming to earth saying things that totally didn't square with what the religious, religious leaders had been saying for a long time. They'd made a, a cottage industry out of creating rules that people could measure themselves by, ways of determining whether your neighbor was good enough for God, you were good enough for God, the people you went to church with were good enough for God. And when Jesus came to earth, he blew that whole system up. And you have to understand, for these guys, they were all about image. That was their thing. They, they needed to be respected by people. And so when Jesus came in and said all these things, it really created an affront to their public, their public image, their public persona. And so now there was this tension between them and Jesus. And Jesus never minced words. He was always ready to tell these guys how far off the beam they'd gotten. Because when, you, when you're a teacher... Uh, when, when you are supposed to be a teacher helping people connect with God, God holds you to a high standard. My dad and I talk about this all the time. God will hold us to a higher standard than, than people who don't teach because we are held accountable for what we communicate as teachers. And so Jesus was, he was pretty direct with these guys and he was telling them, you're off the, you're, you're, you're off the beaten path, guys. You're, you're, you're not just off, you're actually going down the wrong road. And so to have that said to them in public was the worst possible thing that could happen. They wanted their respect back. They wanted people to, to start looking up to them again. And so they knew they were going to have to take Jesus out. And they were going to have to do it in some way that would lead people to believe that he wasn't who he said he was. So whenever Jesus is in public, you've got people who are seekers. You've got people who want to be healed. You've got people who are trying to catch him in a lie, catch him in some, try to trick him in the way that they ask him questions. Or ultimately at this point... Two years into Jesus' ministry, they just want to find a way to get him in prison or kill him if they possibly can. So Jesus is accustomed to being under pressure. Wherever he is, there's a lot of people around, there's a lot of pressure. But when we get to the story that we're going to talk about this morning, this is Wednesday, we, we think, Wednesday of the week when Jesus would be crucified. Just a couple days before the crucifixion, Jesus is with friends. You know what that's like? I don't know if you I don't know if you've experienced this, but if you've ever experienced being in a in a situation where you have tons of demand, tons of pressure, and lots of people around you wanting stuff from you, what it's like to be able to get out from underneath that for a few minutes and just hang out with people who don't want anything from you. Just people who like you and want to be around you and people that are your close friends. That's what we're seeing when we open up the book of John and we turn to chapter 12 because the Bible says six days before Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany at the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. And a dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Now, what we believe about the timeline, when we look at all the Gospels together, it looks like he arrived there in Bethany six days before Passover and then a few days later, this dinner was uh, prepared Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Now, we know from the other Gospels that Jesus was staying at Lazarus' house, but the dinner that Jesus is going to, this dinner that's going to be held for him in his honor, this is a dinner that his friends want to have to honor Jesus, was held at the house of Simon. And Simon's a common name in the Bible. There are multiple Simons, but this particular Simon is designated in the Bible as Simon the leper. Now, if Simon had had an active case of leprosy, nobody would have been going to his house to have dinner, right? Because leprosy, especially as, as you would see it in biblical times, was, was an, a disease that was characterized by sores on the extremities that were, that were terribly painful. They were debilitating, and it was an aggressive sore that would eat away at, at the, the flesh. And what would happen over time is 
as that disease would run its course, those extremities would begin to become numb, and people would start to accidentally hit their, their fingers or their arms and limbs against things and not even recognize it, or they would burn them and not even uh, recognize it. And so it would, there would be this tremendous um, physical trauma, and over time, and there was no cure for it, it was highly contagious, and over time, that person would eventually just pass away from the disease. So Simon, at some point, recognized that he had this disease, and he would have had to have boarded up his house, closed everything down, because you couldn't live with everybody else once you knew you had leprosy. You had to move out. The, typically what you did is you went and lived in a cave with other people who had leprosy because they weren't afraid of catching it from you. And if you went out in public, you had to loudly announce to everybody this embarrassing disease that you had because uh, that, was, that was what you had to do to keep other people from catching what you had. So Simon, at some point, would have had to have basically shut down the life that he'd lived up until now, live a completely different life, separate from his family, separate from his home. And yet we have here the story where Simon opens up his home to Jesus for a meal. Why is this the case? It's because Jesus had healed him of his leprosy. There had come a moment, at some point, we don't know all the details, but at some point Simon had met Jesus, and Jesus had cured him of this incurable disease. The death sentence that he had assumed would never be reprieved. He had an opportunity to start life over again. And so now he offers his home up for a place for Jesus to have this dinner with his friends. I kind of, am, I kind of smile when I think about this home that once was dark and boarded up and vacated, now bright with light and music and dancing and people having a good time as they celebrate their friend Jesus. There were some other people there. Martha was there. She was busy getting the meal ready, right? And, and you remember that this is something Martha likes to do, right? Because just shortly before, we have Mary and Martha uh, offering to have dinner for Jesus. So Jesus comes in with his disciples and, and with their entourage. And, and Martha wants to make sure the meal is perfect because this is her act of service. She wanted to do this for Jesus and for all the people that were around him. So she was just going like crazy, trying to make sure everything was right. All the plates were set. All the courses were properly served. And, and just absolutely wearing herself out, stressed out, just hoping she could make it through the evening. And she turns over to ask her sister to go help get, Mary get something out of the oven. And when she turned around to ask Mary to do something, she recognizes Mary is not in the kitchen where she's supposed to be. She thinks this is crazy. She goes looking for her sister. Where's she at? And she finds her sister in the living room where Jesus is. Jesus is standing there. She, or, or Jesus is standing there teaching. There's the disciples and, and, and the other people who've gathered around to hear Jesus teach. And there's Mary plopped down, sitting down on the floor at Jesus' feet, listening to what he has to say. And Martha thinks this is the most ridiculous thing she's ever seen in her entire life. And she wants to help straighten Jesus out. So she does what Wendy and I sometimes talk about a personality that we call it the lash out and dash out, or excuse me, the dash out and lash out personality. Wherever the problem is, they're going to dash out to where that problem is, and then they're going to lash out and let everybody know what they're thinking. There's no filter for this personality type. And that's what Martha does. She, she dashes out to where Jesus is in the living room, and she lashes out, and she says, I don't think it's fair that I'm having to do all this food preparation in the kitchen all by myself, I'm going nuts in there trying to make everything right. And my sister is in here sitting down, listening to you teach. Make her, now she's going to tell Jesus what to do. She says, make her come in there and help me. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, Martha, 
you're, you're worried and you're distracted, you, you're anxious about a lot of things. But there's only one thing that's crucial. He said, Mary's figured out what that is and it's not going to be taken away from her. It's like Martha was getting, how many of us know, don't raise your hands, but how many of us know that the top producers in life, those who, those who create the most, those who work the hardest, those who have the highest demands in their life tend to be the ones who behind the scenes have the most anxiety. Sometimes nobody else knows that. Sometimes they, they cover it up really well and people around them think that they're doing just fine. But underneath it all, there's, there's more anxiety than, I mean, it's, it's like, it's the more the workload, the more, the more the stress, the anxiety wears down on this person. And Martha was just about to have a nervous breakdown. Whether or not she knew it or not, she was about to have a nervous breakdown. And Jesus looks her in the eyes and says, you're gonna have to start saying no to some good things so you can say yes to the best things. But I do think it's interesting that <laughs> at this meal, Martha is helping. It's different. In the last meal, Martha was directing. In this meal, Martha is, is helping. She's serving, the Bible says. She's, she's getting there. She's getting there. She's trying. It's like a lot of us, you know, when we have to learn to pare down a little bit and to take our workload down a little bit. It doesn't happen overnight. I mean, Martha is helping serve the meal. This isn't even her house. Do you know somebody like this? It doesn't matter whose home it is that they're in. If there's a celebration, if there's a meal going on, they're not sitting at the table eating, they're helping. Where's the kitchen? Who can I help out? What can I make sure is, you know, this was Martha's personality. So she's there serving. I can only imagine Jesus had to crack a smile when he saw her carrying trays around because this was just who Martha was. The disciples were there. They'd been there through the ups and downs of the last two years. The victories and the storms on the, seas of Gal on the Sea of Galilee, they'd been his crew for the journey. And then there was Lazarus sitting at the table. Now, Lazarus had experienced something nobody else at the table had experienced. The Bible says he'd been dead. Nobody else at the table had been dead before. I mean, he'd experienced the whole thing. He, he experienced getting sick, real sick, super sick, dead, <laughs> buried, and then Jesus shows up and calls him out of the tomb, and Lazarus walks out on his own accord, and he's healthy again. I mean, he'd been through all the stages. So it was, it was a special group of people who was at this dinner. And you should know, it was no small thing that they were doing having this meal. In John eleven fifty seven, 57, the Bible says, the leading priests and Pharisees had publicly ordered that anyone seeing Jesus must report it immediately so that they could arrest him. I mean, despite the festive atmosphere, there was still a lot of tension in the air. Because they knew that at any moment there could come a knock at the door and it could be soldiers that would take them all away. They would take Jesus away and the rest of them for harboring a fugitive. But you know, it's one of those things, it's very hard to threaten somebody who's been brought back to life. It's very hard to threaten somebody who's had leprosy and is now whole. It's very hard to threaten a group of, of disciples who've watched Jesus turn a boy's box lunch into a meal for thousands of people. So there was a lot of courage in that room. And I can only imagine, I've, I've been to some of these kinds of dinners where somebody is a guest of honor, and especially if it's kind of a medium-sized dinner, not a, not a huge one, but if it's sort of a medium-sized one, you know what happens at these, uh, at these honorary um, um, meals. People will start to get up 
and start to talk about that person. They'll sort of make a verbal tribute of how wonderful that person is, and they'll talk about what it was like to get to know them and how they've made an impact on their life. And so I can only imagine as Simon gets up first, it was his house after all, and Simon says, you know, you, you have no idea what it's like to have to say goodbye to your family. You have no idea what it's like to have to, to deal with pain that cannot be dealt with every single day. And he, and he lifts up his sleeve and he looks at people at the table. He says, look at this. My skin is as healthy as the day I was born. And he says, I've gotten, this, I've gotten a second chance at life. And it was this guy who did that. It was Jesus who did that. He gave me a second chance. And then I see his Martha stops what she's doing for a moment long enough to say, you know, everybody says I'm so put together. Everybody says I'm such a strong woman. Everybody says, you know, Martha will take care of it. Martha will take care of it. Martha will take care of it. But what people didn't know is behind the scenes, I was a basket case. Behind the scenes, I just was trying to make it from one day to another. I was just trying to put one foot in front of another. And I was trying so hard to be good enough for people. And it was never working. And it was this man who told me, it's okay, Martha, it's okay to say no to some good things. It's okay to pare it down. Just focus on the, import, focus on the most important things. If you keep focusing on everything, you'll never focus on anything. And it was like he gave me my life back. He gave me a chance to start things over. I got a second chance at life. And then Martha sits down and Peter gets up. Because anytime there's a chance to talk, Peter's going to talk. Peter talks when there isn't a chance to talk. And Peter gets up and he says, you know, guys, being a fisherman all my life, I've seen some really bad storms. I mean, I've been, I've been there when things looked really bad, but that one storm on the Sea of Galilee, I thought it was over for sure. I thought that was it for us. And I figured this is how it's going to end for us because Jesus wasn't in the boat. I figured if Jesus was in the boat, we'd be all right. But Jesus wasn't in the boat, so I figured this is how we're all going to die. And then... I see Jesus walking alongside the boat, and I call out to him. I say, Jesus, can I come out there to you? Because I figure I'd rather be out there with him than in the middle of that boat rocking back and forth. And Jesus said, I could. No joke. I get out the boat. I start walking. I make it a couple. I walked on water. Of course, there was a, you know, for a minute, I kind of got scared, sort of crazy, all of the wind and the water and in my face, and I started to kind of freak out, and I started kind of sinking down beneath the waves, and I thought, now here's where I'm really going to die. You know, I just managed to walk on water. Maybe that was, you know, my, my last thing I will ever experience on the face of planet Earth. And as I'm thinking that, all of a sudden I feel something grab a hold of my arm, and it was Jesus. It was this man's hand. He pulled me up out of the water, and he carried me back to the boat, but I do want to go on record that I did walk on water. And in two years, I've learned so much. And it's this man who taught me. He taught me things I never thought possible. He gave me a second chance at life. And then I can see as the dinner turns kind of somber, as Lazarus stands to his feet and he says, you know, I don't know if you'll ever know what it's like to look at your family members, and see in their eyes the sadness and the fear that tells you that they know you're not going to make it. And to make peace with death and, and to slip out of this world, only to hear Jesus call your name and to be able to walk back 
into the arms of your loved ones, I'm telling you, I literally got a second chance at life, and it was this man, it was this man who did that for me. I mean, it just kind of gives you chills to think of what, what, would have, what would it have been like to be around and hear these people talk about what Jesus had done for them. But one thing you should know is there is one person kind of in the background who won't be making a speech tonight. Mary is not a, um, she's not a speech maker. Do you remember in that encounter where Jesus was at Mary and Martha's house and Martha was so mad because, because Mary wasn't helping her in the kitchen? We hear basically nothing from Mary. She's, she's not a talker. She grew up, in, she grew up in, with Martha being her sister. Martha talked enough for both of them. Yeah? So she didn't talk much. If you're a person in this room who tends to be a little bit more on the quiet side, a little bit more on the reflective side, if you're a person for whom words do not come easy, especially in emotional moments, you probably have a soul sister in Mary. To give a, a tribute in the form of a speech, well, that just wasn't who she was. But she wanted to do something. And, and, and beyond that, she was, she was motivated to do something big. She wanted to do something big. Because even though Mary says little, she loves deep. And so she, she thinks this is, this is all wonderful and all these verbal tributes, this all, it's all great, it's all wonderful, but it's not enough. It, it just seemed inadequate. And she felt like it was, it was time to do something bigger even than that. So she slipped away to her room, to her closet, and she, she pulled out a, an alabaster box of perfume, 12 ounces of perfume that she'd been keeping for a long time. And the Bible tells us kind of what the, what the worth of this perfume was. If we put it in today's dollars, or actually 2015 was as close as I could, as close as I could get the dollar currency to, to move over. We're talking about 12 ounces of perfume that would be worth about $55,000. Right? This is very, very expensive perfume. I looked up yesterday the, the most expensive perfumes in the world, and there are a couple perfumes that would beat this, but nowadays these perfumes come in jewel-encrusted Containers. So if you take the diamonds out of the picture, this is still probably in line with the most expensive perfume in the world. Mary was a woman of means, but even for a woman of means, this was a, this was a treasure that was meant to last for a lifetime. Something that she would use just a small amount of and then hand to her children, who would use a small amount and hand on to their children. It was a, it was a family legacy item. So she goes to the closet to retrieve this perfume. And, and here's what I think she intended to do with it. There was a tradition at the time that if you had a meal with a guest of honor and you wanted to, you wanted to do something very special for them, well, what you would do is you would take a, a cake of perfume. And, and it's important for me to kind of make this distinction. Now when we get perfume, it's in a spray bottle, right? And it's in liquid form. At the time, it wasn't like this. Perfume was more of in a balm form. It was like a, a wax, and it would melt at body temperature. And so you would take a, a, a cake, a pretty good-sized amount of this perfume, and you would place it on the head of the guest of honor. And over the course of the meal, that person's body heat would melt the, the perfume, and it would drip along the sides of their head. And wherever they went in the room, that aroma of the perfume would follow them. And it was, a, a, it was just a way of, of honoring that person, showing them how special they were. 
I honestly believe this is what Mary planned to do. And what you should know is, if you were going to do this, you would never do it with something like spikenard. You would never do it with a perfume that was $55,000 for 12 ounces. You would do it with nice perfume, but you wouldn't do it with an... Spikenard was so precious. What What a woman would do if she owned any of this is she would take her handkerchief to this container and just dab her handkerchief to it a little bit just to get the essence of the smell and carry that handkerchief with her. But that was it. You only ever used the tiniest of amounts on the most special occasions. But I think she planned to take a big cake of that perfume and put it on Jesus' head. But as she walks down the hallway back toward the room, I think she hears Lazarus and Jesus talking and laughing. And she remembers what it was like just a short while ago to sit alongside Lazarus' sickbed and to see him getting worse and worse. And no matter what they tried, it just wasn't helping. And they sent for Jesus, but Jesus didn't come fast enough. As she had sat there just trying to do all that she could for her brother, she kept thinking, he's going to get here. He will get here, and he's going to make things better. But as Lazarus breathed his last, it started looking like everything she had counted on, everything she'd believed, everything she'd hoped was falling apart. Now, I know this from working with grieving families. As a pastor, I've talked to a lot of grieving families over the years, and there's several different ways of handling grief, but there are two personalities that tend to, tend to be very um, well differentiated. There's people like Martha who spring into action, right? You have a loved one who's just passed away, but they, they spring into action to do what needs to be done. Let's make the funeral preparations. Let's make the burial preparations. There's just stuff that has to be done. You put one foot in front of the other. And this person usually won't hit that wall of grief until maybe six weeks to eight weeks after the passing of their loved one. But there's also the personality of Mary. I see this sometimes where it's just to the person who experiences that loss, they, it sinks in right away, and it's just like, as you try to talk to them, it's almost like they're not there. They sort of have this blank stare, and you can tell that it's, the weight of it is just crushing. And so when we hear about Jesus coming back after Lazarus's death, the Bible says that Martha got word Jesus was coming, and she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. I think Mary was just overcome with grief. I think she was just still in that place that said, this doesn't make sense. I don't understand how this could happen. It wasn't supposed to be this way. The Bible says that Jesus wanted to talk to Mary, so Martha returned to Mary and said, the teacher is here and and he wants to see you, so Mary immediately went to him. And when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked them. And they said, come and see. And then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. Martha, she's always going to be the one to state the obvious. Uh, Martha said, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. And Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. And then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. 
And Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. I always love this. I heard my dad preach on this many times when I was younger. And he always used to say that Jesus had to say, Lazarus, come out. Because if he had just said, come out, everybody who was in that tomb would have walked out when he said that. You sometimes people ask me, why does it say Jesus was angry? It doesn't make sense. And, 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 and a lot of times they'll also say in the same breath, it, it seems so strange. Sometimes God shows up in the Bible as sort of angry and, and, and uh, very firm-handed and, and uh, direct. And then other times God looks very benevolent and kind. What, what's the truth here? Here's what you should know. Jesus was angry when he faced the tomb of Lazarus because God did not design the world that we live in to function the way that it does. God did not design the world to be a place where there was cancer, where there's death, where there's weeping, where there's sorrow, where there's pain. Sin did that. When sin entered the world, the Bible says sin wrecked the world. And so here's what you should always know. God looks at us as human beings in a benevolent and kind way even when we fail. But God is angry about what sin has done to this world and what it's done to our lives. And I think when Jesus was standing there looking at this tomb, recognizing that the reason that all of this grief and weeping and wailing of people that he really cared about was caused by the fact that sin has wrecked this world, I think it made him angry. But I think Jesus was ready to demonstrate that he has power over death, he has power over hell, and nothing that Satan is at work doing on this planet is bigger than what Jesus is at work doing. And so I think that as Mary processes that and she sees Jesus and her brother sitting at the table sharing stories and laughing together she knows that her original plan as big as it had initially seemed is still not big enough in that moment she was convinced that Jesus deserved everything and as the guests look on she broke the perfume box and emptied its contents all of it on Jesus head Now, Matthew and Mark tell us that she emptied it on Jesus' head, but I want you to notice that John emphasizes the feet. This is in John 12, verse 3. It says, Mary took her 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance. Now, why does John emphasize Jesus' feet? Because for Mary, this was a default position. If you look at the stories that involve Mary, she's almost always at Jesus' feet. In the story where Mar- Mary and Martha's home, where, where the dinner's being served and, and Mary is listening to Jesus teach, she's at Jesus' feet. When Lazarus is dead and Jesus comes back and Jesus says, I want to see Mary, when Mary comes to him, the Bible says she fell at his feet. And now, as she breaks the box of perfume, she immediately goes back to her default position. She goes to Jesus' feet. Now, why is this important? At that time, to sit at someone's feet indicated that you're saying, you are the teacher, I'm the learner, I don't know anything, you know everything, teach me. This, is, this was what, in those days, this was how children were schooled. The teacher would sit in a, in a, in a chair, in a seat, and the little kids would sit all around at the, at the base of that teacher's feet. And the, it was taught, that, or you would hear it said in ancient texts, that so-and-so sat at the feet of this teacher, or so-and-so sat at the feet of this teacher. Basically just saying, this is the person that this individual was brought up listening to and learning from. And so Mary is an adult. She is a respected, dignified, put-together adult. But she is not beyond sitting at the feet of the person that she knows she needs to learn from. 
And she continually wants to communicate that. I need to learn from you. But as Mary falls to her default position at Jesus' feet, and she begins to see the perfume begin to drip down towards his feet, she recognizes that she's unprepared for this. I mean, had she thought about it, had she had some time to contemplate that this was what she was going to do, she would have brought a towel. She would have brought something that she could wipe Jesus' feet with. But she didn't think to do that because this was just a spontaneous act of love. And so now, now Jesus has perfume dripping off his feet, and she thinks that can't, she can't let that go. She needs to, to do the right thing and, and, and wipe his feet. So what she does is something that any woman in her culture would have thought unthinkable. She takes down her long hair and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Well, in that culture... For a woman to, to take down her hair was seen as indecent. It was seen uh, as not dignified. She didn't care. And especially to, to wash someone's feet was thought to be the, 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 the role, the job of the lowest servant in a household. And she didn't care. Because this was a reckless act of love. This was what she wanted to do because in her mind, Jesus deserved the best of everything that she had. It's interesting, I, I, I thought about this as I was preparing for this talk, I just don't think there's a way that I can communicate how inappropriate the people around would have thought it was for Mary to dry Jesus' feet with her, with her hair, how inappropriate it would have been for her to, to make this gesture with her perfume. But Judas does a pretty good job of trying to express it. If you look in John 12, verse 4, Judas says, hey, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And the Bible says this was not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. I mean, in Judas' mind, this, this was a waste because 55 grand in the uh, disciples' pocket would have given him an opportunity to siphon some off. He didn't get his cut. As a matter of fact, there are some Bible scholars who, who believe because the very next thing we see in the Scripture is Judas going out trying to find out how much money he can get to betray Jesus. There are some scholars who believe this so agitated him that he didn't get his cut from the perfume that he went out trying to find out how he could sell Jesus because he had become that obsessed with, with money. But Jesus answers him very sharply. Jesus says, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. I don't have much time here, but why did Jesus say she did this for my burial? What, what, what point was he trying to make there? Well, here's what you should know. The, the average lifespan of, of an adult in this, um, in this time was somewhere between 30 and 35 much different than it is today. And at that time, uh, the Jewish people did not embalm uh, bodies. When a person died, they would honor that person for a day or two before burial. They would bury that person in a tomb if they were, if they were um, uh, wealthy enough to have a family tomb. But for those couple of days before the body was buried, they would um, put spices and ointments on, on the body so that the family could be around and still grieve at that time. And so Mary, with a, with a life expectancy of between 30 and 35, we, we've got to assume that Mary had been involved multiple times with preparing bodies for burial. This was something she was used to. Many, many times she had taken expensive perfume, expensive, expensive spices, and put them on a body of somebody who was now unable to enjoy the aroma. It was a gift given to someone that could no longer enjoy it. Well, have you ever noticed that sometimes it's the person in the room who talks the least, who listens best? 
You know, Jesus had been trying to tell everybody around him for a while that he was getting ready to be crucified. He'd been trying to tell the disciples, he'd been trying to tell his friends that he was coming to the end of his ministry on earth. I don't know how many of them actually got it, but I think Mary did. I think Mary listened really well, and I think she understood. And I think there was a part of her that said, why should I wait until after he's dead to give him this gift? Why not now? Why not, why not while he can still smell the aroma? Why not while he can still enjoy what it is that I want to give him? I think it's an important point because I think a lot of us sometimes, we do expect to give God everything that we have, and we do expect to give him our best just sometime down the road when it's a little bit easier, maybe when the kids are grown up, or maybe when our marriage is doing better, or maybe when we are a little bit more financially solvent. But Mary had this understanding that if you want to give God your best, the time to do that is now. Frankly, I don't think she heard any of the voices of her critics, Judas, or any of the other disciples who eventually hopped on the bandwagon and wanted to make this about why didn't she sell this and give this to the poor. I think she was overwhelmed with the sense that this was the right thing to do. How do, you, how do you do that? How do you know when other people are trying to tell you that what you're doing is a waste? And I, I say that because there's going to be somebody in here, maybe there's a teenager in here, and you really feel like God is calling you to the ministry. You feel like God is calling you to some sort of service lifestyle for the rest of your life, and yet there's going to be somebody in your life, maybe a, a professor, maybe a friend, maybe somebody who um, uh, knows you professionally that's going to tell you that would be a waste. You can always give to your church. You can always get involved with volunteering and this or that, but, but you need to go reach your full potential. be such a waste to try to, to use all the talents and skills that you have just to go into the ministry, and, and I think you would find that most of us who are in the ministry have heard that at some point in time from someone. Or maybe you're, you feel like God is calling you to give something to someone. You know that somebody is in need, and you really feel like part of giving God your best is to, is to show love to that person and to give them something, but there's going to be somebody around you who goes, that's, that's such a waste. Let them figure it out. You don't need to fix their, you don't need to help them with that. Let them handle it. That's such a waste for you to, to make, such a, make such a big gesture. If you're going to give something, give something small, but don't give, don't give something big. Well, Jesus, Jesus really helps us with this in the book of Luke. And, and, and before I read this passage to you, I just want to tell you, in, in Jesus' ministry, over and over and over again, he talks about priorities. And there's a really good reason for that. The, the end product of your life will always be the result of your priorities. It just works that way. So Jesus is often talking about priorities, but there is one special verse where Jesus gives us uh, an axiom about life priorities. This is such a powerful verse, it can tell you exactly what has first priority in your life. And if you want to change what has first priority in your life, it will tell you how to change that, right? And this verse is in Luke 12, 34, and Jesus said this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you wanna know what is your number one priority in life, this is easy, you just have to ask yourself, where is most of my treasure? What am I most invested in? Whatever it, is that I'm, whatever it is that I'm giving big time to, whatever it is I'm investing big time in, get, whatever is getting the most of me, that's my number one priority. But it also tells us how to change our priority. If something in your life isn't the number one priority, but you want it to be, then what is the Bible telling us? It says, bring your treasure where you want your heart to be because that's... Couples tell me all the time in my couple's ministry, they say, we've fallen out of love. And I always tell them, you haven't fallen out of love, you've just fallen out of investment. 
Because the Bible says our heart always follows our investment. So what was Mary doing? She was just bringing her treasure where her heart was. Her heart was connected to God. He he was her first priority, and she brought her treasure to her first priority. But if you think about it, isn't that what Jesus did for us? I mean, think about Jesus being put on a cross to pay for the sins of the guys who were driving spikes through his hands and through his feet, to pay for the sins of the guy who just whipped him so badly that the Bible says he was hardly recognizable as a human being, to pay for the sins of men who were spitting on him and pounding thorns into his head. I could understand why a person could stand alongside that and say, what a waste. The perfect son of God, for people who are treating him that way, what a, what a waste. But Jesus didn't look at it that way because the Bible says that Jesus' heart, God's heart has been with us since the beginning. And when you see the picture, when you see the artist's depictions of Jesus on the cross, what you are seeing is God bringing his treasure where his heart was. He, he, brought, the, he brought the greatest treasure of all time to what he loved the most. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved, he loved the world so much that he was willing to give the greatest treasure of all. So I leave you with this as we begin this series. It's a simple question. And that is, has God got your very best? Have you brought God your very best? Are you invested in, is, is, if God is where your heart is, have you brought your treasure to where your heart is? Because this is what I want to tell you, and I, I'm, I'm already in overtime, but I'm, I'm going to just, a little, little bit of confession is good for the soul. I'm going to tell you, you want to know what the problem is with me? I'm going to tell you what the problem is with me. Well, actually you should talk to Wendy because she probably knows a lot of problems with me. Uh, <laughs> she lives with me constantly. Let me tell you, as it comes to my, as far as it goes, my relationship with God, one of the things that I think is a problem with me is that I'm good at giving tributes. I'm good at being able to talk about what God has done in my life and to say, yeah, God has done this and God has done that and that's really awesome. I'm good at giving thank you cards, little tokens of thank you to God. God, thank you for this. I'm, I really want you to know how much it means to me and I'm good at sending God little thank you cards. I'm good at making tributes. But when it comes to giving big, well, I've got some work to do there. And I hope that if you're in this room and you're like me, maybe this talk, maybe as we spend some time looking at Mary and we think about a woman that allowed the noise and the distraction and the craziness of life to melt off for a few minutes and sit at the feet of Jesus and really think about, have I given all? Well, maybe that would inspire us to do the same thing. Because listen, the world, isn't, the, world, the world isn't changed by tributes. And the world isn't changed by thank you cards. The world is changed by reckless acts of love. That's what Jesus has done for us. The question is, are we ready to do that for him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you love us so much. Thank you for leaving this powerful story in the scripture for us and for the inspiration that Mary has been to generations that her acts, even without words, have taught us so much. Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. If you're in this room and you'd say, Jonathan, you know what? I I kind of am a little bit like the Mary person you talked about. Sometimes I have to just process things. I have to think through it. And I've I've got to just work through it in my head. But as I'm listening to you talk about Jesus and what he did for me, 
It's clicking. It's making sense. And I, I, I want to reach out to God and I want to have a relationship with him. Here's what I want to tell you. God has already done the hard part. All that remains now is he's waiting for a response from you. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to say the words to a very simple prayer. And you can follow along with this prayer silently in your head if you would like to, to say, Jesus, yes, I want to have that relationship with you. Ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died and rose again for me. I know I'm a broken person. And I know I can't save myself. I ask you to forgive me for my failures and to make me God's child. Thank you for loving me. I pray you'll do something amazing with my life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody, look here just for a moment. If you just prayed that prayer with me, would you do me a favor? Would you take the Talk to Us card, check the box that says, I prayed to receive Christ, take it to guest services if you would. We have a, a really cool little bag we'd like to share with you that has some great resources in it. Next week, we continue on with Jesus Encounters. Thank you so much for being here this week.